0: Father, we love to consider the fact that our Savior will uh, have all creatures in heaven above, earth below, and um, and under the earth. All creatures will bow at His name. And they will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of You, our Father. No one will um, raise their fist or stay standing. They will all bow the knee. We will do it gladly. Others will do it. Uh, unwillingly, resistantly, but they will have to do it because You are the King of all kings. You are the Lord of all lords. And so we, we worship this uh, Savior now. We, we worship You now, Father, and we want to exalt You with our lives. We recognize that Christ is Lord over all of our lives, and so we pray that every part of our life and and the expressions of our faith here in this church would be Uh, managed and used by you for the sake of your glory and for the advancement of Christ's work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we would expect that a church made up of spirit-filled Jesus followers would be free from drama and conflict and at least open sin. But that's not reality. Every single church that receives a letter in the New Testament is rebuked or corrected in one way or another except for two, the Philippian church and the Smyrna church in Revelation 2. Those are the only two churches. That there's not some kind of rebuke or correction. Uh, usually it comes in the form of harsh uh, words. And what that tells us is that the local churches throughout biblical history and today, all the way up till today, are really a work in progress, aren't they? And if you wanted to put a selection of local churches on a spectrum, you know, on one side you have maturity, on the other side you have um, immaturity and and division, well, then all these churches that we read about in the New Testament and all the churches today, we could probably put them somewhere on there based on, on where they're at. But this church in Corinth is especially plagued with problems, mostly self-inflicted problems, right? They they are not willing to follow god they are set in their ways in chapters 1 through 4 paul talks about all these reports that he's heard about divisions in chapters 5 and 6 paul has to address blatant immorality and christians suing one another in chapters 7 through 16 paul responds to a number of questions that the church apparently has which in many cases are common sense for um a mature, a, a a christian that has been been one for any period of time. Paul talks about marriage, singleness, personal liberty, orderliness and worship, the proper exercise of communion, the unity and diversity of spiritual gifts, and the guarantee of bodily resurrection. And all of these issues, Paul, by and large, all of these issues, Paul has to address their pride and their division and their hatred for one another. So Paul writes this letter to show them that the church belongs to Christ. It is set apart for God's purposes and kept by the Holy Spirit, and therefore it must not be divided, it must not be unholy, it must not be unloving. Things that were clearly characteristic of this Corinthian church. Division, unholy, unloving. Corinth needs to get their fo- focus back on Christ. They needed to follow The spirits leading toward unity and holiness and love. So that's where we've been in chapters 1 through 15, but we're not finished yet. There are a couple more questions that apparently Paul needs to respond to in chapter 16. In verses 1 through 4, he responds to some questions about a collection that needed to be taken. He says, Now concerning... This is usually the way that he moves from his next topic that he's been working through, beginning in chapter 7. Now concerning this issue, now concerning that issue, he does it again here in chapter 16, verse 1. And then... Apparently, they had some questions about travel plans, and we'll see that in verse 12. Now concerning Apollos and, and what's going to happen with him. And then Paul finishes up with his normal um, instruction, wise instructions and encouragement to the church, and then, um, then uh, prays for grace for them. So let's read the text here together. I'll read it. You follow along in your Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is the Word of God. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you do also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save, as he may prosper so that no collections may be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And, And if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia." for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. For he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all things you do be done in love. Now we urge you, brethren. You know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to sh- such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acha- Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prisca, Greet you heartily in the Lord with all the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. In chapter 16, we see that the church is God's priority and because the church is god's priority we should live according to his purposes because the church is god's priority we should live according to his purposes paul gives us 10 things he gives really to the the church there in corinth but by extension i think the holy spirit has designed for us to apply these things to our lives so 10 things that we see in this chapter first we should provide for other churches in need in verses one through four We should provide for other churches in need. In verse 1, he gives a reason for giving. Now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches of Galatia, he goes on to say at the end of verse 3, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So here's a gift that I want you to gather, I want you to collect over a period of time because we need to take this to to Jerusalem. You're not the only church that I'm asking for an offering from. Uh, there's a number of churches here in the Galatian region that I also have done the same thing. According to Acts 11:28, there was a great famine that took place. This probably took place around 45 or 46, AD 45, 46. So it would be in the middle of Emperor Claudius' reign. And one of the areas that suffered badly from this famine, it wasn't a worldwide famine, although um, prob- probably uh, was felt in, in, in various parts, But but sometimes famines just have a... A more devastating effect in certain areas, and Jerusalem was one of those areas. Well, Paul writes this letter about eight years after that famine, and Jerusalem is still feeling the consequences, or, or feeling the, um, the the trouble that had come from that famine. They're still reeling from it. Um, they likely had to use all their money, obviously when, when food is scarce, you have to buy food still in order to live, and and in doing so, you're going to pay top dollar for it when food is scarce. So they would do that for themselves and apparently for obviously some needy people in their church. And as a result, they just depleted everything that they had and probably had to, um, to sell some of their own possessions. Whatever the case, they are in a position of need. Paul knows it. And so he goes around to the churches and says, I want to make a collection, I want to put a collection together so that we can take this back to Jerusalem and help them. In verse 2, we see the frequency of their giving. Paul asks the Corinthian church to help care for the needs of the Jerusalem church by taking up a love offering, as we might call it. And notice how often he has them do it. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and save so that he, are as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. So Paul saying, listen, every week I am, I am exhorting you to take up an offering for the sake of the Jerusalem church. Now this is different from their normal weekly offering, like we would have as a part of our church. This was a special, again, like I, what I would, what we might call love offering that was just for the Jerusalem church, and it was to be collected on the first day of the week, which makes sense because that's the day in which the the early church met. This was the pattern of the church to meet on the first day of the week, and um, and that was because it's a celebration of Christ's resurrection. The Sabbath had been um, the Sabbath had been fulfilled in Christ and um, no need for us to to meet on Saturday anymore. Instead, we meet on Sunday to celebrate Christ's resurrection called the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1. So they they do this weekly. Paul's making an appeal to them. Do it now so that when I come, you have a, a large sum of money that we can take to Jerusalem together. The amount of their giving. Notice Paul doesn't call for a tithe. Remember, the tithe is done away with, along with the Old Testament Mosaic Law. We are not under the Mosaic Law. The New Testament church was not under the Mosaic Law. Instead, notice how he says it. He says, put aside and save as he may prosper. So as you are prospered, to the extent that you are making money, you should give a portion of that to this offering to help the Jerusalem church. So it should be proportional, as the NIV translates it, it's an amount that is in keeping with your income, so you know someone who's making you know in our terms someone who's making a hundred thousand dollars should give proportionately more or or they should give in total more than someone who's making only ten thousand dollars a year right because the proportion can be roughly the same but but the idea is that that um that we should give in proportion to what we make and uh Again, the the tithes are, are done away with. If we're going to stick with tithes as a way of giving, then we probably should stick with them all the way. The Old Testament required two tithes per year on all of your possessions, 20% um, of your possessions, and then an, another tithe every three years. So on average, every year you'd be given 23%. You know, we, we like to say, well, tithe means 10%. It does, but they would actually have to do it two times plus another time every three years. So technically, if we want to go to the Old Testament law, and put ourselves under the Old Testament tithe, and let's do 23%. But I don't hear anybody talking about tithes in that way. It's always 10%. And um, so instead, we have we ought to give. And just a good passage to look up. Um, it's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, out of the abundance of what God has given to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Paul talks about this same idea of giving, and in that context, he's also talking about a special kind of giving to the local church. But I think there's principles there for us in our normal giving as well. All right, so we have the reason, the frequency, the amount, and then at the end of verse 2, we have the purpose. The purpose of their weekly giving um, is so that Paul doesn't have to make a last-minute emotional appeal. Notice what he says there at the end of verse 2. So that no collections may be made when I come. So what Paul is calling for is what I think we... um, Ought to be doing as well, which is regular, faithful, thoughtful, periodic giving. When I say periodic, I mean in proportion to the way that you get paid. So if you get paid once a month, then pay once a month. If you or, or give once a month. If you get paid once a week, then, then give once a week. Um, I, I think in proportion to the amount that we have and 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 the time period in which we give, we receive money. We should also give money. It ought to be faithful and thoughtful. Instead of Rather than this kind of, you know what? Um, let, let's just wait until I come. Paul could, could have said that, right? Could have just said, "I'm, I'm going to come one day. When I come, make sure that you have your checkbooks out." And uh, maybe he could even have a whole week right before it, and put on this big emotional appeal, show pictures of, of uh, the Jerusalem Church and how dilapidated it had become, or whatever the case. And then maybe people would give in that way but Paul is saying listen a better expression of our ongoing faith and our the, the better expression of on, our ongoing faith is regular giving uh, anybody can respond to an emotional appeal and give a few bucks or give a lot of money but but for someone to regularly when no one's talking about it when no one's looking we're, we're just constantly giving because we know this is what God requires of us he expects us to um, help um, to help contribute to the needs of the church. We talked about this in First Thessalonians or First Timothy five uh, seventeen to twenty one with the responsibility to to pay the pastor, um, but also in John uh, Third John uh, talks about sending out missionaries for the sake of the name that you ought to do this. So we have responsibility to help support them, and um, so this, this I think is is an obligation, but it's based on grace we we don't there's no law okay we don't tell you how much to give we don't tell you what percentage to give um instead we expect each person to give according to 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 how god has prospered them again second corinthians 8 and 9 helps helps to uh, think through this finally under this first point uh the, the security of their giving i love this little detail that we get in verse 3 Paul doesn't say, "Hey, I'm the apostle. You can trust me with the money. I'll take it to Jerusalem. I'll, you know, bring all your money together. I'll grab it and I'll take it for you. Um, and I'll tell it came from the Corinthian church." And he also didn't say, "You know, it wouldn't look right if I took the money, so I'm not going to do it." But instead, I'm going to choose messengers from your church. I'll be the one who chooses the messengers, and I'll take. The, uh, and then these men will take the money. So let me appoint them. No. Notice what he says in verse three when I arrive whomever you the church may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem So Paul recognizes that there could be some accusations against him of financial um, abuse, right Paul's collecting all these monies from all this money from these churches, uh-huh. Yeah, and he's taken to Jerusalem. I wonder how much is actually going to make it there. I mean, we see how Paul lives. He's living in squalor. Of course, he's going to skim a little bit off for himself. And he would probably justify it by saying that, hey, he was the one taking it, so he should get paid for it or something. But Paul recognizes there are those kind of accusations that would be out there for financial abuse. And so instead, he sets up appropriate checks and balances to say, I'm hands off. I'm going with you. I'm leading the trip. And so and what's happening here is not only this church, but the churches in Galatia, Asia Minor, they're all coming together. Paul's picking up apparently seven of them. If you read the story in Acts, seven representatives from various areas all have a collection that they're bringing to Jerusalem. And the benefit is that is that they can't accuse him of any wrongdoing. And the added benefit is that these church members, representatives, get to experience the joy of being being able to hand this gift over to the Jerusalem church. And the Jerusalem church gets to see firsthand, hey, here's some brothers that I've never seen or met before, perhaps. They're from the other side you know, of the Mediterranean. And they're coming here with a gift for me. And uh, this is a, a credit to, to God's grace and to the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul wanted them to share in that joy. Paul was not the one who would receive all the credit. The Corinthian church would receive credit for that, which they should obviously deflect to Christ, right? That through our giving, what, one of the purposes of our giving is so that, that grace will abound to more and more people so that more people will be able to give thanksgiving to God. So Paul's giving them this opportunity to do that. You give, you get to take the money to Jerusalem. As a result, they'll thank God for His grace You'll be the tool in the hand of God for their thanksgiving, that, that brings about their thanksgiving. So, when appropriate, we ought to provide for other churches in need, and um, lots of opportunities for us to do that. Certainly, uh, you are you, you excel at this. I, I love, uh, especially when we we go to see our missionaries. You know, it's, I don't have to twist your arm. And say, you know what? Really, you know, really short here. We only got. You know, one bag of stuff. We, I mean, we just are overloaded with things uh, to take to the missionaries, and that's a credit to, to your love for them and your love for Christ. So, provide for other churches. Secondly, because the church is God's priority, we should be patient with our ministry partners. We should be patient with our ministry partners, recognizing, recognizing that there is a larger work. Now, we don't have an Apostle Paul kind of resides over all of the churches in southeast Michigan or something, but, but that's why I call ministry partner, someone who is in the ministry with us, but you know we're kind of a little bit impatient with them because they're slow to get something done, or they're slow to, to get this process going, and, and we're depending upon them, and this is where Corinth is with Paul. I mean, they want to see Paul. They want to see him face to face. They want him to answer questions. At the time of this writing, Paul is in Ephesus. You can see that in verse, um, verse 8. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So he's waiting for Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. It's a celebration of the harvest. So it was happening in the spring. It's called the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. And Paul says, I want to go to Corinth. I want to come and see you in person. But first I have to finish some work. I, I have to stay here until Pentecost. And then I plan to do some more things. He says that in verse 5. I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. So he has some work to do in Macedonia. He's not coming directly through Macedonia. And we know that because of verse 6. Notice what he plans to do with Corinth. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. So he's in the spring. He's saying, I need to go through Macedonia and spend the winter with you is my goal. So that means that he's probably going to take the summer to travel around to Macedonia, meet with some churches, make sure everything's going okay raise up some leaders, that sort of thing. Three observations from these verses. Number one, Paul desires to spend quantity time with the Corinthian church. Paul desires to spend quantity time with the Corinthian church. He did not want to simply pass through on his way to, let's say, Rome or, 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 or some other place. He says, I hope to remain with you for some time. Look at the end of verse 7. I hope to remain with you for some time. So Paul desires to spend quantity time with the Corinthian church. Observation number two, Paul's plans are dependent upon God's will. Where do I get that from? In verse 7. If the Lord permits or if the Lord wills. Paul's saying, listen, I, I can't do whatever I want. Now, he's wise to plan. Right? The fool doesn't plan. The fool is hasty. Listen to Proverbs 21, verse 5, just just to prove that point. The plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage. So if you're diligent, you're going to plan. It's going to bring about some good. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. So the, the opposite of planning is being hasty, just kind of flying by the seat of your pants type thing. That kind of person, generally speaking, leads to poverty. That's what the Proverbs says. So plans are good, but so we, we don't just say, well, God, you know, God's in control of everything, so I'm not going to plan. Just be hasty. No, that's not the point. Plan, but at the same time, recognize that your plans are subject to the will and plans of God, right? Listen to Proverbs 16 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So we make plans, but God ultimately is determining whether those plans are going to come to fruition or if he has another plan. Has ever that ever happened to Paul in his missionary journeys? Where he said, I want to go to this place and I've determined, apparently he wasn't getting voices or anything where God was telling him exactly where to go. He just had these desires to go to various places. And and then he says, but the Holy Spirit prevented me from going. So, in other words, God in his providence prevented him from from going, And that's the nature of life. We make plans wisely so, but we submit those plans to God's will. God, if God permits. Observation number three, open doors do not guarantee conflict-free living. Open doors do not guarantee conflict-free living. In verse nine, open doors do not guarantee conflict-free. Free living. So here, Paul has an open door. He says, I have a wide open door for effective ministry. But notice the next line. And there are many adversaries. Or we could say, but there are many adversaries. We often think of open doors as something that guarantees no obstacles. As if God's just going to take all the obstacles and lay them all down. And now we're just kind of whistling our way all the way to glory. That's not the the reality of life. Sometimes there are clear, open doors for opportunity, but there's much struggle to be done when we walk through that door. There's many obstacles that we still have to get over, and Paul says, that's okay. This is God's means of reaching these people, and I want to be here when it happens. All right, so provide for other churches. Be patient with ministry partners. We need to get moving here. Number three, we should respect ministry partners and treat them with care. So, because the church is God's priority, we should respect ministry partners and treat them with care. Verses 10 and 11. Paul says, Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Now, why do you think Paul commends them to treat Timothy with such care? Right, He says, make sure that he doesn't get put in a position where he's afraid, verse 10. And then verse 11, don't let anyone despise him. And then again, verse 11, send him away in peace. Why do you think Paul made these three commands in these two short verses about Timothy? Any ideas? Okay, good. So probably the Corinthians... I mean, we already know Corinthians already gave Paul the third degree. I mean, they, 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 they um, talked, talked about him as if he was a second-class citizen or as if he uh, was of no value to the church. How much worse are they going to treat a young guy like Timothy? But also we know from 1 Timothy that Timothy was apparently a timid person by nature. And he was also young, right? Paul had to tell him in 1 Timothy, um, don't let anyone look down on your youth. Timothy, go ahead and say these things. Uh, you need to stand up to these false teachers. God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, Timothy, but a spirit of love and, and, and the power and a sound mind. So Timothy was already um, predisposed, so to speak, to, to, um, to, to, to being timid. And on top of that, they were kind of abrasive by nature. So Paul says, don't make him afraid. Don't despise him. Send him away in peace. And what's the reason that Timothy should not be treated, mistreated at the end of verse 10? Because he's doing the Lord's work. He's not just coming there because, hey, didn't have anything to do this weekend. He's actually working on behalf of the Savior that we love. So respect ministry partners, even. When we might disagree with them. Treat them with care. Number four because the church is God's priority, we should recoil at Christian rivalry, verse 12. We should recoil at Christian rivalry. Here in verse 12, Paul wants Apollos to return to Corinth and to minister to them again, right? He says, I, I tried to encourage Apollos to come, but but he couldn't. It wasn't his desire to come now. Apparently, he had something else more important, but he says he will come when he has an opportunity. So, it's not that he hates you or anything like that, but The reason I I think this is about Christian rivalry is because Paul is making it clear that he and Apollos are on the same team. Right? Do you remember the cheerleading going on in chapter 1, verse 12? We got this group over here. I am of Paul. And this group over here, I am of Apollos. Paul's saying, listen, we're not on different teams. We're on the same team. We're not at odds with each other. And so we, we ought to be recoiling at Christian rivalry, and let me show you how that works with someone who should be my adversary, according to you, Corinthians. Number five, we should live in, because the church is God's priority, we should live in faith and love. Verses 13 and 14, we should live in faith and love. So now that Paul has responded to all their questions... And he's told them about their travel plans, his travel plans, Timothy's, Apollos'. Now he turns to his final exhortations and some, some other business. Here, Paul wants them to excel in faith and love. And we can summarize these five commands in these two verses in three ways. So, notice the five commands. Let me just show you them. Be on the alert. There's one. Stand firm in the faith. Two. Act like men. Three. Be strong. Four. And then let all, all of it be done in love. That's the fifth one. So we can summarize them in three ways. Number one, hold your ground. Hold your ground. That, That would be the first two. Be on the alert and stand firm in the faith. Both of these are kind of military images, right? Where you have this guard who's watching out for the enemy and his attack. Paul's saying do that spiritually. Watch out for the attack that's coming. And then hold your ground, right? Stand firm. That's the next command. Be stable. Don't retreat. Stand your ground. So hold your ground is the first way that I would summarize these two verses. Number two, know where your strength lies at the end of verse 13. Know where your strength lies. And I'll take these two together as well. They seem to go together. Act like men and be strong. So act like men has the idea of use your strength and courage to obey the Lord. He's talking spiritually here. And then be strong literally uh, is translated be made strong. Do you hear the passive nature of that? The passive voice of that verb, be made strong. So you don't work your strength or build strength. You be made strong. But by whom would we be made strong? By God, right? And so what we need to know is remember where our strength lies. Our strength comes from God. So we use our strength to obey the Lord and recognize that all of our strength comes from God. Finally, verse 14, Bathe all of your actions in love. So hold your ground, know where your strength lies, and bathe all of your actions in love. And in saying this, Paul is implying, uh, he, he's really, I think, in one way, summarizing what he's been trying to say throughout the whole letter. You are proud and arrogant, and you need to be acting in love. You need to love one another. You need to serve one another. And I think he's also implying that the way that Paul is is speaking to them writing to them, is actually done in love. Despite the fact that there are strong warnings in here and rebukes, we can kind of sense the tone of Paul coming down with a harsh tone or a stern tone at least. We learn from that that love is not always squishy and fluffy happiness that's bubbling up in smiles and laughing, right? But love always points a person to the truth. Love always points a person to the truth and considers their needs as important. And that's what Paul's doing. It's like, listen, I I have to raise my voice, so to speak, in the tone of this letter. I want you to know that all of these things have been bathed in love. It's ultimately about my concern for your spiritual well-being, and so I'm speaking the truth to you in that way. Number six, because the church is God's priority, we should honor our authorities, verses 15 through 18. We should honor our authorities. Specifically, Paul calls for the church to submit themselves to Stephanus and some of these other men. Stephanus and his household was a family that was baptized by Paul, according to chapter 1, verse 16. And they had been trained to be servant leaders of the church, according to our text here. Notice at the end of verse 15, they devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. So these people are servants. They're not all about you know, getting their name on a board or make sure people recognize them. It's about serving the needs of the church. And so Paul says, you know what you need to do to them? Verse 16, be in subjection to such men. So that, that phrase or that verbal phrase, be in subjection, is the same idea of submitting. Same idea. So submit to these men. Apparently they were leaders in the church in some way. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be saying submit to them. We don't submit to, for example, a parent doesn't submit to his child, right? Um, uh, uh, The child submits to his parents. So So these men must have had some kind of authority over the church, and the church was kind of resisting their authority, and Paul says, no, submit to them. And then notice the second thing that he tells them to do at the end of verse 18. Acknowledge such men. So Paul's saying, listen, I've received much spiritual refreshment from them. They've come and told me about the, some of the good things that you guys have been doing and, and it's been refreshing to me. And they've also encouraged me in my own faith and that it's refreshed me. And so what I want you to do to them is not only submit to them but acknowledge them. Recognize them for their, their service. Okay? Not necessarily put on a big parade but, but honor them. You know, Show respect to them. These men are, are men who love Christ and are serving Him in your church. Number seven, because the church is God's priority, we should greet one another in love, verses 19 through 20. Because the church is God's priority, we should greet one another in love. Here we have a number of greetings just kind of piled up right on the top of each other. Verse 19, Paul sends greetings from the church in Asia Minor. So he's saying these churches in, in this area that I've visited, they love you, they're praying for you, they send your greeting, their greetings. The end of verse 19, Paul sends greetings from Aquila and Prisca, which is just another way of saying Priscilla. Apparently, they were with Paul in Ephesus. They were some of the ones who were instrumental in starting the church in Ephesus. Very likely, they actually did start the church in Ephesus. They're there while Paul's writing it, writing this letter to the Corinthians. And he says, as I'm writing this, I'm telling them about what's going on, and they want you to know that they, they send your greetings, their greetings. Verse 20, Paul sends greetings from the Ephesian church. So, um uh, another another greeting, and then, in verse twenty, Paul calls for the Corinthians to greet one another with a holy kiss, which I would just describe as a proper cultural expression of love. So in our culture that that kind of greeting would be misunderstood in most cases, so we don't uh, we we don't hold to that instead we we feel that this is a cultural thing, and not just our culture but many cultures, this would be inappropriate to kiss someone um, so Uh, particularly of the opposite gender and so on. But in some cultures, it's okay. And in that culture, then that would be a proper form of a greeting. But in our culture, perhaps it's just, as I've said in other settings, because this is a command that's repeated four, five times in the New Testament, I've said in other settings that, you know, a warm handshake or a hug is appropriate, I think, in our culture as a way of showing love and, and, um, and, uh, and, and expressing a proper greeting. All right? So should greet one another in love. Number eight, because the church is God's priority, we should watch out for phonies. Verses 21 and 22. We should watch out for phonies. Paul takes the pen from his um, secretary, Emanuensis is the technical name for it, and he says, I'm going to write this last portion, verse 21. And it suggests that Paul is saying, listen, what I'm about to write, this is important. Okay, I'm doing this with my own hand, he says in verse 21. And what does he say in verse 22? That seems to be so important. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Paul says, the love for the Lord is the identifying mark of true Christians. Love for the Lord is the, the identifying mark of true Christians. But that love is not expressed or, or that Christianity, we could say, is not expressed in you know wearing a cross necklace or having a Jesus fish on the back of your car, although those are not sinful inherently. okay. But, but that doesn't necessarily prove that anyone's a Christian. Paul's saying what, what does is their love, that you will know them. This is what Jesus said, right, in John 13? You will know them. All men will know that you are my disciples by your love. And so Paul's saying love for Christ is what you ought to be looking out for. And what did Jesus say about the expression of our love? How is it that we can tell if a person is actually loving Christ? John 14:15, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. So, it's not just this, you know, ethereal kind of, you know, I've got a picture of Jesus at my house or I think about him all day. Love is shown in the way that we live. Do we obey His commandments? And particularly, Paul's not specifically going after the Corinthians, but he's saying, you watch out for people who talk about love and all these big flower returns, but they are not willing to submit themselves to His rules. They're not willing to submit themselves to the preaching and the reading of God's Word and the obedience of God's Word, right? Right? That's not love. Paul recognizes that the reality is that there will be some and perhaps many who do not love the Lord, and we as a church need to watch out for them because it doesn't matter what kind of flowery words they use when they talk to you. God is not impressed. Watch out for phonies. Number nine, because the church is God's priority, we should pray for the Lord's return. And I get this from the very last word in verse 22, Maranatha, which you may have a note in your Bible that tells what that, what that word means. Um, does anyone have? Okay, our Lord come, exactly. Our Lord come. It's an Aramaic phrase that they would use. It's actually a prayer to God, to Christ, to come. I think of this example. um, I, I think this is an example for us to follow that we also should pray for the Lord's return. Isn't that what John, the Apostle, did in Revelation 22? Two times he prays, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. It's amazing because Paul knew and John knew and we know that god has already determined a time when the lord will come right does god know when christ will come right no one knows the day or the hour only the father who is in heaven okay so he does know a time and an exact time when christ will come so the question we could ask is why in the world would someone like paul or john or us ever pray for the lord to come when he's already going to come And it seems to me that, um, for one, we have an example of it, but it also shows that God works through means. One of the means or conditions by which Christ will come is when the prayers of His people rise up to a place where there's kind of a storehouse of, Lord, come. Not that, you know, we just need to keep praying more and more prayers. If we do a thousand this week, he'll, it'll be closer to the coming. Not, not so much that, but... Um, I should have looked up the text in Revelation where um, the prayers of the tribulation saints there in heaven are kind of constantly going out to God and, and being lifted up like incense from the altar into the nostrils of God. It's as if God kind of gets this whiff that more and more people are in this state of, how long, O Lord? How much longer? Until you send your Son... And then finally, the father, like a good father, responds to the prayers of his people that have been building up over a long period of time. Jesus comes. All of it was planned by God, but he still uses our prayers to actually bring it about. Number 10, because the church is God's priority, we should recognize our need for grace. Verses 23 and 24. Recognize our need for grace. Finally, Paul ends his letter as he begins and ends every letter that he writes with a message of grace. Did you ever consider why he he does this? At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says, um, verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then chapter 16, he ends it by saying, verse 23, The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul, you already said this. Why... You begin and end all of your letters with grace, grace, grace. I think it shows. what that? It's important. It shows that from beginning to end, this whole letter and all that I'm talking about, talking about, is dependent upon the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And it's not just a letter. See, as Paul says it each time, what he's saying is all of life from beginning to end is about grace. It's about us leaning on God for grace. This grace expresses itself in loving, difficult people like Paul says here in verse 24, My love be with you all. People who um, despised Paul, people who um, ridiculed Paul, Paul says, My love is with you. I I love you guys. Um, And so sometimes... God calls us to love difficult people like Paul was called to love the Corinthian church. And that's one of the marks of someone who actually understands what grace is, right? I mean, the fact that we have been loved by someone when we were unlovely and when we continually are unlovely, Hosea is a good example of that, right? We are Gomer, right? The fact that we receive that kind of grace should lead us to love unlovely people. Right? I mean, what does Jesus say? Uh, I think it's in Matthew where he says, what credit is, is it to you if you love people who love you? Right? Who doesn't do that? Even pagans do that. Of course they do. It's really easy to love people that love us back. But the real testament of a true believer is to actually love people who despise you. And one of the places that um, those kinds of conflicts and difficult people show up is in church, surprisingly. There are difficult people in church and, and we are called to love them. So, <coughs> to close, we exer- we exist to serve Christ. Paul writes, to a volatile church which is full of largely full of immature, irresponsible, and self-serving people. And throughout his letter, he is straightforward and stern, but this last chapter shows that he's not flying off the handle with, his, with some kind of violent anger. He's actually thoughtful, loving, considerate, compassionate, and full of grace. And with his care, the Corinthian church and we should learn that one of the ways that we express our love to God is through purposeful care of fellow believers that we actually think about the church the way Paul thinks about the church. Someone that he's trying to lead on to greater godliness, greater Christ-likeness. You see, this is not my church. This is not your church. And in a sense it is, right? We belong to it and it belongs to us. But, but ultimately it is Christ's church. What I mean by that is, and and that it's not our church, is that we didn't buy it with our blood. Christ bought this church with His blood, right? And so that means that we need to be willing to set our purposes aside. We might have all these desires for what we want a church to be, but we need to be willing to set that aside because this belongs to Christ. And we're going to fulfill His purposes in this place. And therefore, we should provide for churches in need. We should be patient and respectful towards our ministry partners. We should recoil at Christian rivalry. We should live our lives in faith and love. We should honor authorities, greet one another with love, watch out for phonies, pray for the Lord's return, and rely heavily on God's grace.